Well, man, I'm uh, excited to speak to you again on the matter of living a life that looks like our servant king named Jesus. Uh, if you want to be Christian, if you want to live a Christian life, then you better become familiar with the path of Christian service. Uh, the Christian life is a path that is followed in the path of a king who was a servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. At the Last Supper, before Jesus went to the cross, in ultimate service to put us in a position that we could not be in without his sacrifice, he got up from the table, wrapped himself in the cloth, and took the lowest seat of the servant in the house and washed the muck off of his disciples' feet. Judas's feet get washed. Peter, the betrayer's feet, get washed. James and John, the power-hungry, consume with what seats they're going to get in the kingdom, get washed. Jesus doesn't withhold his service for the great. He gives his service to the lowly. And if we want to be like Jesus, we've got to become familiar with the fact that it's often in service to the least of this world and the most undeserving of the world that we find ourselves in the path most similar to Jesus' path in this world. Our goal has not been that you would merely be inspired, but that you would be uh, transformed in the way that you would live by application of living the servant's life. Now, I understand that a lot of times you hear things that you desire to do, you just lack the ability or the grit or the follow-through to implement them into action in your life to actually do them. My life is filled with a whole list of things that I wish I did do, with, unfortunately, a whole lot of uh, excuses, usually depending on who I'm around, as to why I have yet to do them, uh, especially around my wife. How many of you got many things that you intended to do for her that are still on that honey-do list long after the due date of her expectation of them being delivered? Anybody want to get honest in church and say, amen, brother, I'm with you, I'm suffering with you. There's nine or ten of you, and the rest of you are perfect men. And if he didn't raise his hand, you should just feel honored that he chose to be married to someone like you. Uh, so we are looking at the application portion of this series because our intention is that we would grow as Christ's servants in this year. The gap between where we are as a church and the impact I believe the Lord desires to make through us as a church has to be filled with people who get consumed with Christian service. It can't be a day in which you serve the Lord, but it has to become a lifestyle with which you serve the Lord. Uh, simply put, you can't have a team that you serve on and call that a life of service. You've got to have a life of service to Christ that takes its form in a job, that takes its form in being a mom, that takes its form in being a dad, that takes its form in being a spouse, that takes its form in being a neighbor, but it's all about service to a king in every avenue and in every role and in every aspect that you find yourself in. And if we don't get good at Christian service, then I fear that we won't be good at living the Christian life. And it's my ambition that over this year we would grow as Christian servants. We've been looking at Isaiah chapter 42. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the 42nd chapter of Isaiah. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one. We'd love for you to have one. Uh, it'll be on the screen as well. The 42nd chapter of Isaiah steps into a story of an unfaithful people serving a faithful God. You and I should relate to this in various ways. We have all, whether it's before Jesus or now that we have a relationship with Jesus, failed to be faithful. Uh, I desire to be consistent in my pursuit of Jesus, but there are some days where I take days, and if I'm being honest, sometimes it becomes a week, and there have been a few times where it became a month, 
There may have been a few times where it became like an entire season. There may have been a few times where it became a year. Can anyone relate to me where you took a year off? Uh, some of you just coming back after your year off, welcome back, we're glad you're here. Some of you just coming back after your three months off, welcome back, we're glad you're here. You may have gone prodigal, but what you need to know is that the Father still called you son. And he loves you. And he has a plan for your life to use you for something of great purpose and great impact for his kingdom and his glory. And I understand that you may struggle with what the Christian life looks like more than you live the Christian life. But my hope is that through the preaching of the word and as we look at Christ's example in Isaiah 42, you would come to a better consistent life as a servant of God. In chapter 41, the people have served idols instead of God. Uh, the prophet says to the people of Israel, go and ask your idols to do anything. Ask them to speak. Ask them to move. Ask them to say or show any kind of sign. They can't because they're inanimate objects that you've created in your own image to serve your own purpose. And if we're not careful, we can still fill the church house but not be looking to be made into the image of Christ but instead trying to make Christ into our image. And as a result of it, we get a man-made version of religion which religion, according to Bono, is what you have whenever the Spirit's left. And for a lot of us, that's where we're at. Bono's a singer for you two. Uh, so back in the day, just right here real quick, you, you, you didn't have auto-tune. Either you could sing or you couldn't sing, right? There was no T-Pain. Okay, that, that didn't happen, okay? And so you, you, you had to be able to sing. Bono was one that actually could sing. They actually learned this thing called an instrument. You played it. Even with cows, anyway. My, my point is... For a lot of us, we aren't experiencing the power of the Christian life because we're experiencing a religious version of it that's been made by our uh, friends and traditions into being something that looks the part, but it lacks the fruit. And Jesus said you'll know them not by how they act, but by the fruit they produce. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mercy, self-control. And if that's lacking in your life, that's a telltale sign that something is not connected. And I don't want it to be disconnected for you. I want you to be connected. I want you to bear much fruit. I want you to be fruitful for the kingdom of God. And so we want you to see the application. That comes in Isaiah 42. He says, look, unlike unfaithful servants, I have a faithful servant that I'm going to sing, uh, send. And 700 years in advance, it's prophesied in detail the kind of service he would render whenever he came. So 700 years in advance, Isaiah chapter 42, we get these signs of what the servant who is king would come and do. And if we want to be Christian servants, our service should look similar. Uh, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it starts out, sorry, it starts out by saying this, look at my servant who I strength, whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring justice to the nations. So we started out last week with two points about Christian service. Number one, if you want to be a servant like Christ, you've got to look at Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, it is okay to stare. In fact, it's required to stare. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith, according to Hebrews. And it's when we take our eyes off of Jesus that we start doing things that aren't like Jesus in the thing that we call Christian. Does this make sense? So you've got to gaze at Jesus. What do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean, fix your eyes on his word. Fix your eyes looking for his presence. Fix your eyes looking for his interruptions. Fix your eyes looking for his activity in the earth. Don't live as someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus on Sunday and then lives as a practical atheist the rest of the week, not expecting the interaction of God in the deadbeat job that you are trying to endure. No, look for God at work in your job. Look for God at work in your marriage. Look for God at work in your neighborhood. Look for God everywhere you go because he's not, he's not trapped in a temple that's built with human hands. That's Acts chapter 17. Instead, his spirit is everywhere. 
everywhere, and he's at work everywhere, and he sent you where you go as an appointment so that you can deliver and bring the kingdom of God everywhere you go. So look for God where you're at. Set your eyes on his word. Put your eyes fixed on him in prayer, and set your eyes that are looking for him to interact and intervene in your life around you. So you've got to stare if you want to become Christian. William Blake, a theologian, said, you become what you behold. You become what you behold. Whenever you look at your favorite sports team, you start looking like your favorite sports team. You buy the apparel, you buy the outfits, you buy your house, because you've looked so much at that sports team, starts looking like that team. Some of you even have replicas of the uh, places where they play in your house. And so literally, you've looked so much at that team that your house, your life, what you wear looks like that team. The idea is that you should look at Jesus to the point that you look like Jesus to the world that's looking around you. Your eyes should be so fixed on Jesus that your life begins to look more and more like him every step of the way. What are you looking at? That's the first step to Christian service. If it's not Jesus, then it's going to be a mess. You'll start serving and counting. You'll start serving and going, man, they owe me. You'll start serving and making it a debt that God has to give you back. And when he doesn't pay you on time, you begin to think that you've indebted God some way, so then you lift your fist at God as if he owes you something. Not knowing that it's by grace you've been saved, and there's not a single bit of your effort that has ever earned anything that God has ever given to you, both common grace or salvific grace where he saved you. So what are you looking at? That's the first question. If you want to be a servant that looks like Jesus, you've got to look to Jesus. Number two, if you want to be a servant that looks like Jesus, last week we laid home in verse one, that you have to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Christian service requires dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It says at the end of verse one, he, uh, that I will put my spirit upon him. Jesus was fully God and fully man. That is a big theological term. It's to say that he didn't earn his identity as the Son of God through his cross, but he came as the Son of God to take on the cross. He, being in himself self-sufficient and with no need of help or power, lays aside many of his divine attributes, though he remained in his identity as the Son of God, so that he could live by the Spirit. The question we asked last week was why? The reason we gave you, as we looked at the New Testament, was because you were going to get saved and you were going to have to live a Christian life that you were incapable of living apart from the Holy Spirit. The Christian life requires absolute, moment-by-moment dependency upon the power of God in your life. And I'm supposed to move off that point and move forward, but I'm afraid that if I give you application without you understanding the significance of dependency on the Holy Spirit, I will, I will create within you a pharisaical religious heart that will go and make a mess of the name of Christ. <laughs> so it, it's messed with me all week. Like, like let, let, me, let me just be really clear. It's really messed with me all week. The idea... That many of you are just living in and of yourself and trying to apply Christian values to your life that no doubt have benefited your life with no power of the Spirit at work in it. I had a friend that turned me on to this text that Paul prays over the church in Ephesus as he's in prison. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom. Where does the wisdom come from? The Spirit. I really need you to help me here. Some of you, you think you're smart. And you're nothing more than a KJV jack behind. You've got wisdom that's puffed you up and it's not humbled you low. 
You got wise and you think you're big. Instead of understanding that wisdom that comes from God helps you to know how small you really are. Huh. And it scares me. It scares me that a lot of the people we look to are narcissist and egotistical maniacs who are all about building their platform and not actually serving his. And we think that they're the mark and the standard when all they've done is gotten puffed up with degrees on walls. Uh, no one ever taught me to preach. I never had a class. Uh, like, like I, I, I took a speech class that wasn't about preaching. I gave, a, I gave a talk about Little Debbie Cakes and their history. I got saved. Two weeks later, I got asked to preach. I didn't know how to write a sermon. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know, like, how do you, how do, you do that? I, I, somebody like, you still don't know. I know. I don't know. <laughs> I want you to get this. Like, I... My life, since I met Jesus, has embraced the space of either God's at work in that guy or he's an idiot. It's one of the two. And the text says he's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And I love the fact that there's not, I can't point to a wall and go, there's all the doctorates in preaching that give you reason to go, this guy knows what he's doing. I don't. I don't. But the Holy Spirit is in me. And all I know is, since I met Jesus, the first invitations I got since meeting him were to preach the Bible. I had a significant stutter. Public speaking was the last thing I wanted to do. It terrifies me. I used to puke every time before I would get up to preach. Am I oversharing yet? I, I, I got up at the first time I ever preached at an FCA. There were six students that showed up to it. it God was doing big things. I, I preached... I preached a sermon that I ripped off from Charles Stanley on TV because I didn't know what I was doing. Two of the kids gave their life to Jesus. I, I, I tried to talk them out of it. I, I'm not joking. I literally looked, I was like, are you sure? Because I, I don't think I did that right. Like, I, I don't think that was right. I, I, then another invitation came. Then I was the youngest preacher ever hired for Centerfuge Camps, and they flew me to California to be a, 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 a summer pastor at a camp where they were going to give me 600 kids a week for seven weeks to preach five times to. Here's the problem. I had preached less than five times in my entire life when I got the gig. Less than five Less than five. Do you understand how weak I was? Do you, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I had never, I had three sermons. I had to have five. And they were supposed to be on a subject that sunk up with the Bible study. I didn't know what I was doing. I showed up to the camp with one sermon written because I didn't know how to write a sermon. I'm not telling you that this is wise. I'm just telling you that what kept happening is Jesus kept putting my life into positions where I had to be dependent upon his spirit. And as a result of it, I, I, I've gotten to a point where I can construct a sermon. I know how to do a little bit of study, but I don't depend on it. And this week, this week, I'm telling you, I, 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 it's like, what do you depend on? I depend on the spirit. I, 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 like, I, I, I plead with, I, I don't read the commentary first. I read the Bible and I plead with God to help me to see it, to understand it, to, to grasp it. I, the first 
48 hours of a sermon is just literally a wrestling match that doesn't stop with God. We're like, in my head, I can talk to you, but I am wrestling with God through the things that, and like, as I was wrestling with this, I, I feel like I couldn't move because look, I want you to know the joy of knowing you're in over your head. I want you to know the joy of the Christian life, and I don't want it to be a, a man-made, manufactured version of it. I don't want to be an imitation of, well, we're just doing what the barefoot dude does. Don't do that. Like, the Spirit of God desires to do something through your life that you cannot do of yourself, and it's driven me this week. I couldn't even write the sermon that I was supposed to write for this week because I kept getting interrupted. I would see you as I'm prepping, and I would just stop in my office, and I would just start pleading with your, your, your face in mind, like, God, please, would you just let them see the Spirit? Would you just let them become wise? I mean, this is what Paul's praying. Like, like would you give them wisdom, but it not be of their own derivative? Would you, would you give them humility, but it not be of their own? Like, would you just work in them? Would they be seized by the Spirit in such a way that it would change their life and devastate their calendar and, and mess up their plans? God, would you just please? And so I'm just all week trying to plan and go ahead, and I keep coming back, and it's like, God, would you please just let them? And, I, and so then the next thing you know, like, I'm being weird. I'm out of my office and I prayer, I'm prayer walking the sanctuary and I'm like put my hand and if I can remember where you sit like I, I prayed for you back there not here you moved today but my point was I I would come to cease and I was just like God would you please just let them get it like would you let you let I don't want them to be in a just a show I don't want them to come to see a perform like I want them to experience your Holy Spirit and I'm pleading God would you please and then the next thing you know I ended up up here for like a half hour with the deadline of my sermon done and I have little to nothing done and I'm on my face and I'm just like, God, would you please, would you please just come? Would you come in a way that just changes our lives? God, would you bring revival? God, would you help us to be fathers? Would you help us to be mothers? Would you help us through? And I'm just pleading for you because I want Christ in you. I want you to get it. I want you to experience it. And I, like, it drives me crazy to think that you could live your life around this church and around this culture and you never experience the Spirit of God. And it just, oh, it, it makes, it scares me. It scares me, guys. And so I've just spent all week pleading this point over your life. I don't want to move forward off of it. Like, I want it. I, I want Jason Drotlet to experience Christ in him. The hope of, like, I, want, I want your legacy to be established not by what you leave behind monetarily. I want it to be established by the rich legacy of Christ in you, Jason. I want your family to experience the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit through you. And I'm just praying, like, God, would you please just, just bear fruit through him, through Stuart. God, would you just do it? And I, like, I'm going through the auditorium. I know people are like, you're crazy. I am. I am. I don't care. I don't care. Like either, either, either. We're your cup of tea or there's like 50 other churches that'll serve it. I don't, I don't care. I really don't. So you're like, well, what happens with when we leave? Because we give money. Most of you don't. So don't worry about it. Like, like it's no big deal. Like I'll go sell houses and still preach and still be as insane as I am right now. Jesus lived dependent upon the Holy Spirit. If I can't drive it home enough, like, like, He desires to take all of your time, and all of your talents, and ignite them with the power of his spirit. And I just, I want you to experience the greatness of God. I don't want you to miss out on it. Like, I, I, I get I'm just begging at this point, but I've been a part of two revivals in my life. Like, like legit revivals where, like, you can't, it's not like, hey, we're having a tent meeting from 6 to 8, and, like, the Lord's going to show up, and at 8, we're going to wrap it up because the kids got to get, like, like, I'm talking, like, the Lord took over. Uh, one of them was in 2018. We saw 450 people come to Christ and baptized for seven months straight out of church that I was getting to be a part of. 
The other one was in a student ministry in Greenwood. Uh, how do you know it was a revival? Well, this girl that was a wallflower named Emma led about, I don't know, 17, 20-something kids to Christ at her lunch table. And the principal quarantined everyone that was trying to give their life to Jesus into a classroom and called me and said, get down here and fix this. <laughs> I showed up to the school and little Emma's like standing at the door like she had done something wrong. And she's like, did I do it wrong? I was like, no, this is great. And I looked at the principal and said, right. And he went, yeah, because he didn't know what to do. With... Gosh, man, when you, when you experience the spirit... It, it's so it, it's so freeing. You'll worship God on a Tuesday as hard as you worship Him on a Sunday. You'll 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 feel the closeness you feel at the end of a sermon, like you feel like you you you'll get to experience that all the time. You understand that's not something that's manufactured by a sermon. That's the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. That, that was the whole plan. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians that Jesus would through the Holy Spirit take up residency in your heart. Like that's His intent for you. That's His desire for you. Christ in you. Like like. I want that for you so bad. And I just feel like I, I bang the gong and y'all look at me and sometimes you nod, but I just wonder, are we really getting it? Like, do you really understand that this is the whole aim and point of life? A Christian service requires spirit-filled dependence if it's going to be like Christ. Otherwise, it's just man-made, manufactured, prideful, boasting, building ourselves up stuff. Everything else we talk about in the rest of the series hinges on you getting spirit-filled dependence. If you don't, then it's just going to be a mess. Does this make sense? Verse 2. When the Lord, who is a servant, comes, filled with the Spirit, he will not shout or raise his voice in public. What's that about? What does that mean? Some of you are like, well, you're the preacher. I just told you I don't know what I'm doing. Some of you thought I was joking. When Jesus comes, one of the major themes of the book of Mark is this thing called the Messianic secret. Secret. It's where Jesus does powerful things and says, don't tell anybody. How many times have you uh, been in a Build Your Platform 101 class, and their advice is, when the best moments of life happen, don't put them on social media. Don't promote it. Make sure no one else posts about it or tags you in it either. It's not how you build a kingdom on this earth by the earth's standards. The way you build a kingdom is when you do good, you crop it. You put the right filter over it. You exaggerate it in the details. What happens in the building of your kingdom in order for it to succeed is everybody else that you think is being admonished by your good act and moment is actually being discouraged by it. Because the economy of the kingdoms of the world is built on, look at me, give me your attention. In fact, that's the entire economy of the world right now. The more you look at social media posts, the more they make. If you click, they get even more money. If you interact with what you click on, they get even more money. So they're literally just vying for, look at me, attention all the time. So of course they don't frame the bad moments unless they can benefit from the bad moment, which has now become a thing. No one, though, is like putting up content of like, drive through at McDonald's, living my best life. <laughs> no, McDonald's is where you go in the shade of dark, in the middle of the night. <laughs> Especially if you don't have children. 
to excuse that they're the reason you have to be there, right? Like no one's running around like, you know, losing 40 pounds, holding a picture, holding a thing of french fries, like, eat, like, like no one's doing that, right? Like it just, but that happens. That's part of your story, isn't it? I mean, there's more cheat days than there are fateful days when it comes to most of the things that you've done. But we don't want anyone to know about that. And that's not how you build a big following. No, you've got a persona to keep up. So you've got to project what everybody else consumes in order to get attention, in order to build a platform. Well, Jesus just doesn't seem to take any of our advice on building platforms. Because Jesus goes around doing all of his acts of service and good works, and he doesn't blow the trumpet to get attention to himself. He tells everyone, don't even talk about it. In fact, the book, the Gospel of Matthew says that this prophecy that we're reading in Isaiah 42 is fulfilled whenever Jesus goes around healing and telling people not to tell anyone. Look at what it says. Jesus knew what they were planning, so he left that area and many people followed him. He, he healed the sick among them, but he warned them not to reveal who he was. Now, if I were his PR person today, what would I be saying to him? We need them to go and tell some people. We need them to go and like build a platform. We need this to work that way, but instead... Don't tell him who I was. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. This should sound familiar concerning him. What's he quoting? Isaiah chapter 42. Look at my servant. That's where we started the sermon. Whom I chose. He is my beloved who pleases me. I'll put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. That's verse 1. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. We just read that. We're about to read this. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious and his name will be the hope of the world. That's word for word Matthew saying what was said in verse 2 is being done in the life of Christ because he's not trying to draw a crowd off of the healings that he's doing. Now, did the crowds come? Of course they came. Why? Because when Jesus tells you to do something, what do most of you do? You do the opposite. So let's try that. Jesus doesn't want you to come to church for the rest of the year. Just take it off. He doesn't want you to serve. He definitely doesn't want you in a community group. He doesn't want you to read your Bible. He doesn't ever want you to fast. He doesn't want you to pray more than like 30-second prayers at a time. He's busy. He's Jesus. <laughs> now go be human and do the opposite. Over in the book of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus actually teaches how to give, how to serve, what's Christ-like and what's unchristlike in the service. In Matthew chapter 6, he says this, watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others. Now, this is the hard question. When you serve, do you get, <laughs> is the aim to give God glory or is it to gain from other people around you some sort of attention that makes them think that you are glorious? I want you to think about this. Last time you served, last time you gave, was it like, man, I, that's, I out of gratitude and out of honor and out of admiration of God, like I, I just, I, I want to serve, or is it, is there some subtle footnote in there that's like, and I hope Debbie, and I hope Cassandra, and I hope Bonquiqui, and I hope Chiquita, and I hope Larry, and I hope Bubba, it gets wild whenever you get out there in the world of names, like I hope they see, I hope they give attention, I hope that, and, and, and this is the problem, because at that point, it's no longer vertical service to God, it's now about getting approval from people. And there's never been a moment where you've sought approval from people other than God that it's ever gone well. Don't, don't do them in public for the admiration of others. For you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven when you give to someone in need. Don't do it as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogue. 
But I just want to let you know that the Tuesday night Bible study has been packing lunches for kids downtown. Not, not trying to make myself out to be more than I'm not. Oh, you know, don't, don't, don't give me praise. But I, I do want to. Now, I know I'm describing Baptist Betty. I just had to do it one more time. My, my point, my point in this is to say that many of you would go, I'm, I'm humble in my service. I'm not trying to get attention. Yet, your first thought is, did we get the right picture? What caption can I put on the post for his glory? And in, in, in reality, while I get the desire to admonish and encourage others through your social media, let's just be honest that there's a very thin line between I want to build my brother and sister up versus I just want my brother and sister to know that I'm killing it. And at the end of the day, let me go ahead and tell you, your brother and sister need to know more about your struggles than they need to know about your strengths. They're not encouraged by hearing, how you, by hearing about how you're killing it. They're encouraged by hearing how you were struggling and God killed it in that season and carried you through it. So this is the big cover-up. we got a lot of people that have the dashboard that looks like it's, man, serving God and it's on fire for the Lord. And in reality, it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with building a kingdom that's made in the image of a man and not the image of Christ. You see, Christian service is always humble. Christian service is always humble. If you want to be a servant like Christ, it must be humble like Christ. Hmm. Let me confess some stuff. There have been times, there have been times, where the numbers in our church have been a bigger motivation of me feeling significant than me feeling like God's at work and it being for his name and glory. There are times where the growth of other churches has felt more like a rivalry than kingdom growth. There are times where pastors who I believe didn't preach as eloquently as I would have preached or delivered have seen harvests tenfold of what I've ever seen or received. And I've at times at home had to acknowledge that there's something bad inside my heart still that cares about being seen more than I should. That in a life where we're called to get low and decrease, I still at times get consumed with increasing myself and not in God's time but in my own. Now, I get this is too much honesty for church, and we're not used to that. You're supposed to lie, tell everyone you're good, and get back in your minivan and act like everything's okay. But let's just be honest. For some of us, a lot of our worry, a lot of our quarreling, a lot of our divisions, a lot of our anxiety is rooted and built in the need to find significance apart from Jesus and find them in our achievements. So I need everyone to know that I'm woke. I need everyone to know that I stand for the right things. I need everyone to know that these are the things that I protest for or against. Because silence would, in my mind, somehow mean that I'm not actually the real deal. Instead of dealing with the fact that you and I are a comedy, a comedy of constant contradictions. We are at times motivated for the poor, and we are at times completely fine with being blind to the poor. We're at times motivated to serve the least, and at times we want nothing to do with the least, and we definitely don't want them in our neighborhood. We're at times, oh, it's getting real quiet up in here. 
we're at times really loud about the things that we think the kingdom of God is about. And then at times in the same season, we're so tired that we don't want to take up the fight anymore. And we get real quiet and settle back into just our rows and pews of trying not to disrupt anything. What I'm trying to say is not that you're different and you're wrong. It's that you're normal. Every bit of us in our normal path has a desire to define ourselves in our achievements, define our significance in our roles, to sometimes be loud when we think it'll garner approval or get us to a position we want to be in or get favor from a group that'll like and give us attaboys that'll build us up and make us think that we're significant. And at the end of the day, what it is robbing us of is the humble service of our Savior and Him being the singular treasure and motivator for every action of our life. And at the end of the day, that's the aim of the Christian life that he would be at the center, that he would be the foundation, that he would be your joy, that he would be your treasure, that he would be your hope, that he would be what you pursue. But your arrogance will rob you of it. Now, I get I'm not preaching popular stuff. This ain't the fun stuff. This ain't how to get rich. This ain't how to fix your marriage. This is how to live the Christian life, and it looks a whole lot more like a servant's towel than it looks like being seen and paraded through the streets. And so for a lot of you, your own ego can't get out of the way enough to receive the gift of understanding that humility is the sign, that the Spirit of God has given you a right view of Him and a right view of you. And whenever you get a right view of Him and you can get a right view of you, then you can walk in confidence by the Spirit that He is with you to do the work that He's called you to do, even if it's not seen by the world around you. So no longer are you serving for the audience of people, you can serve for the audience of one. And now by the Spirit of God, you can actually bear the fruit of God in the earth instead of the division of the enemy, which is what many of us continue to do in Jesus' name, slapping it over it like a label. Let me be clear, it's not what's on the outside where the label is that matters, it's what's on the inside that matters. And what's in the inside, as long as it's arrogant, prideful, and rotten, can't produce humility on the outside because all you pour out is that division. <laughs> Some of y'all done got tired on me and you slept whenever I told you I didn't know what I was doing. So that, I get it, but this is my point. Is your service humble? Is your service humble? Uh, the second thing we see in verse 3 is this. He will not bruise the broken reed or put out the flickering light, the flickering candle. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out the flickering candle. What's that about? What's the idea? What does Christian service have to do with that? Well, when Jesus showed up, there were several moments where he was heartbroken at the state of his people. He saw the world and its brokenness and its pain from human eyes. And it, and it motivated him to not just sit back and say, you know what? And this is what I mean by this. I, I, I pray for you is a phenomenal response if you'll actually do it. But next time you tell me you're going to pray for me, if you don't have a good half hour to set aside... If, 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 you, if you're going to mention it like in passing over a 30-second prayer and move on, like I appreciate it, I know he hears it, but I, would, I, I, I need to know who the people are in this church who when we have needs in our church for prayer are like, I'm going to clear out a few hours, I'm going to clear out a day, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray until something. See, I, I was talking to some missionaries in Africa, and they said, look, the difference between you guys in America and us is y'all pray and hope something happens. We pray until it happens. And I just, I just want to know, like, like, who are the people in the house that are going, man, you call the prayer meeting pastor, we'll be there, and we won't stop praying until we see God move. Because that's how revival starts. That's the, that's the path in which it's paved. So, so I get it. You may not be there. You may still, now I'll lay me, you know, good God, good meat, good grace, you'll see. You know, like, like maybe that's where you're at, but like, like I, I, I want us to move from there. And so Jesus comes, he sees the spiritual state of everyone around him, and it motivated him to action. Look at it with me in Matthew chapter 4, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless. 
They had grown up, many of them being Jewish, in Jewish households, going Passover to Passover, uh, festival to festival, synagogue every Sunday. But what are they? Confused and helpless. You would think they would be somewhere completely different given their spiritual history and their religious background. But it's Jesus' words to them, why are you here? Why are you so weak? Why are you still struggling in that? Why are you still being conquered by that sin? Why aren't you stronger than you are? Why is your faith so little? Why? Because that's the voice many of you hear when you come into church. You think God's ashamed of you. You think God is upset because you should be somewhere you're not, because you've let him down in some kind of way, because you're not a spiritual titan or a rock or whatever at this point in time. And what you need to know is that what Jesus walked into was a confused and helpless people. And his response to them was what? Compassion. He wasn't angry. He was driven in love to go, something's got to change. I can't leave you here. That's love. I love you enough to meet you where you're at, but I love you enough that I can't leave you where you're at. I've got to get you out of it. I've got to walk you through it. I've got to move you somewhere else. So, so this is what the text's about. He's going to see flickering candles. Is there a light there? Yeah, but it's barely there. It's on and off. It's, sometimes it, it, it illuminates something, but it can't illuminate a lot. How many of you have ever been in a dark room with a flashlight where the batteries are dying? It almost creates more of a panic. Because you know you're losing it. Ah, I'm losing it. I'm going to be dark. Gonna be... Then it actually gets dark, and then you freak out, and then you get calm to work through it. But when, you're, when you're in that flickering state, you've got faith maybe. You've got a walk with the Lord maybe, but it's just, it's, just, it's just barely hanging on. One more storm. One more economic crisis. One more loss of a job. One more loss of a relationship. One more death. One more season of suffering. One more season in that sin. One more unanswered prayer. Man, it's just barely hanging on. Can anybody relate in the house? Barely hanging on. It's a bruised reed. The reed used to stand upright. Now it's just kind of bent over. And it's just kind of waving in the wind. The wind's blowing around it. And you come and you think, man, I should just be stronger. And the problem is, you can't be stronger. The light's about to burn out. The reed's bruised. It's, it's bent over. You don't look at broken things and say, be stronger. You look at broken things and say, here's the power. You look at broken things and say, here's the helper. That's good news. I serve a God who brings good news. What does Jesus come in his service to do? Well, he comes in Christ-like service and it's humble. And number two, he comes in Christ-like service that's compassionate. It sympathizes with the fact that he understands where you're at and he knows how to deliver you from where you've been to where you've yet to go. Anybody awake? Anybody with me? Hebrews goes so far as to say we have a Messiah and Savior who can empathize with our every need, season, and feeling. What's the difference? He has the strength to empower us in the seasons of weakness so that we can grow with the testimony of His grace and strength over our life. So if you, if you want to serve like Christ, you've got to look, number one. You've got to look at him, stare at him, fix your gaze on him. Some of you aren't looking, therefore it's not working. Look. Number two, you've got to depend. Desperate, consistent dependency, not on yourself, not on your abilities, but on the power of Christ in you. That's the Holy Spirit at work through you. Depend on the Holy Spirit. I'm praying you get that one. 
if the Spirit is in you, then you can get low, and humility is no longer an imposition, but it's an invitation. When you walk in the path of the humble servant, being humble in his path is not a problem. It's a gift. It's a joy that you have. It's a sign that the Spirit's in you. If it's Christ-like service, it's got to be humble. And then finally, if it's Christ-like service, it's got to be compassionate. And everyone got that point. So now may your social media be compassionate. <clears throat> may your words this week to the difficult and hard to love be compassionate. May your time towards the marginalized, the overlooked, and the needy be compassionate. And may through your compassion, may the world see the love of Christ in you. In Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to respond. Our prayer team's here. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we'd love to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with him. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen.